everybody. Welcome to Dr. Podcast. We appreciate you all being here. Uh, like I always say, uh, do support the people that support us and do check out some of the other stuff we're doing. Uh, the streaming shows are really getting a lot of traction and uh, interest from people. That's over at drdrew.tv. It is generally speaking 3 o'clock Pacific time, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that we do move that one around a little bit. Though the Wednesday at 3, we never miss, which is with Dr. Kelly Victory, who's an ER doctor and public health trained uh, physician who sees things a little differently than I do. And uh, I think we're going to get into more and more stuff where she and I diverge more and more on ideas. And uh, we tend to talk to people that don't have other outlets. And uh, as you might imagine, some of the ideas are kind of, (laughs) but, but even so I always learn new things that I had not thought of, did not know. And so it's really important that we just sort of open ourselves to other ideas. Uh, The whole notion of misinformation and disinformation Totally new and alien idea for me. It was always interesting ideas that help us clarify our own. That's how I, we we always looked at it. But now all that has a sort of negative negative blush to it. Today has no negativity. We are talking to Jenny Ketchum Crooks. She's master in social work from University of Washington, 2016. Her post uh, and clinical training was at Polyclinic Behavioral Health. Passion for process based therapies. Uh, And as a result of that, she has founded and developed West Coast Anxiety, where she is currently a psychotherapist. Uh, Westcoastanxiety.com is the, it's all one word, obviously, the website. Follow follow the Instagram at West Coast Anxiety, C-O-A-S-T, Coast Anxiety. And uh, Jenny and I got to know each other in the mid-2000s doing this little thing called Celebrity Rehab. And now look at Jenny. She's a pro with two kids. It's amazing. <laughs> Married for like seven years now, right? Eight years? Yeah, yeah. It's a, what an adventure I did not anticipate I would be on when when you and I met on the Celebrity Rehab shows. Uh, and and I'm, I'm absolutely sort of weirdly flashing back to you with your chopsticks in your hair. Yeah, <laughs> I almost warmed today. I was like, should uh, I just uh, like give Drew some like really intense uh flashback reminders. <laughs> flashback cues as you'd say exactly. and so i for I, a couple things i, I want to know i want to know a what has changed in your outlook as a mental health professional from last time we spoke mm-hmm. but before we do that because i think like i feel like you've been evolving in terms of your not just your expertise but sort of, I think what you think is important for the human experience, I think is probably a way to characterize that. And then what we can do about it to help people make better. But before we get into that, uh, just to sketch people for people that do not know you, your history, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Um, that's a, you and I met in 2009, uh, when I thought it would be a, a great, um, marketing opportunity to join a sex rehab show because at the time I was a porn star and I thought, well, this is just the perfect thing for a porn star to do. She's just a workaholic. No, no problems here. Uh, and then turns out in rehab, you cannot use marijuana or drink Jack Daniels. <laughs> what? I, I was like, I'm not here for this stuff. Right? Very demanding. <laughs> Very demanding. <laughs> Jesus. So, you know, I, uh, all my feelings turned back on and uh, you guys started calling me Jenny instead of Penny. And there was just this really intense dissonance in my head about like this life that I was living, the, um, life that I had lived before and the life that I had possible ahead of me. Um, and, and I just didn't, it became harder and harder to reconcile life as Penny Flame with what 
um, may have been possible as Jenny. Um, you know, and, and so before we met, I was I was in the adult business for eight years um, in front of and behind the camera. Uh, it was before that I sold weed. Before that, uh, you know, complicated family upbringing, um, complicated relationships with my dad, with my mom, um, which, you know, I mean, attachment is a thing. And I I always think about you and and Jill at one point noted to me, like how lucky it was that I was able to form secure attachments, Mm. like given some of, some of the experiences Mm. of my youth. And I, and I think about that often, um, now, um, both in my personal life and also in my professional life and, and with the people that I'm working with. So let's pull that apart a little bit so people understand. So, so there's different attachment styles and, uh, children, infants, uh, a form attachment to mom mm-hmm. and mom has her own attachment, what you would call landscape or map. And that very much affects the child's landscape and the child also comes with his or her constitutional biological features that further influence this back and forth connection we call attachment but it's interesting as i think about you uh i have very intense feelings and and memories as we're sitting here talking and i don't think i had it quite as intense last i've been a little depressed lately so i think that's why it's like everything's like heightened for me right now yeah. um but you know i i always had a sense that that there was an attachment to mom, but the abandonment and the ruptures were really were, were the things. Mm-hmm. And and I, I have two, and you tell me if these are the two that have vivid sort of import for you as well. One was you standing at the window in the motel waiting for mom to come home, mm-hmm. right? You would describe mm-hmm. that very vividly. Mm-hmm. And the other was your dad kind of coked out at the car or something and beating somebody up or threatening somebody and and those two things stand out for me. Are the, were those standouts for you, or are they just things that affected me in a certain way? No, I mean they were they were definitely standout moments in my life, and um, I think moments that I really could point to as um, moments that shaped my perspective on relationships and intimate relationships. And I mean, I think there there are some other more nuanced moments as well. Um, uh, the certainly like witnessing the relationship between my dad and and my mom um and uh the sort of like lovelessness of mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the sort of like emotional distance that was there that was something that i think also really shaped my um how i approached relationships interesting um, I, I didn't, you didn't, you know, of course I was there when you were crawling, you know, you were coming up from the ground floor. And so that stuff didn't, I didn't see that stuff as vividly. So yeah. isn't it I mean, odd though? Isn't it, don't you find it a little bit odd? I mean, as a, as a therapist now, yeah. uh, that was through the math, uh, 16, 14 years ago. And, and I have this vivid memory of it still. Like wow. yesterday. Yeah, me too. I mean, I I have I have memories of talking to you, and feeling like like I had been. Um, I even thinking of it now, like it all just like rushes in. Like mm. I have these like really really uh, vivid memories of talking to you in the trailer and um, feeling like I had been in this like dark dark room, mm. you know. And like some of the work that we did was like, God, it it was a it was just a little candle. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, mm-hmm. and like 
I hadn't even considered that that light could exist in this room that I'd been in, you know? And like, I, I think about that moment now and how uh, like inspiring and like how that just like, God, it, it really gave me hope mm. that, that I could have something other than what I believed I could have. And for other people that feel, uh, you know, on their ass, uh, Jenny, I didn't do anything. I was just there sort of, witnessing <laughs> and trying, you know what I mean? I was just present. <laughs> that, that, and that's, uh, you know what I mean? That's what you need is somebody present who sees you and lets you feel felt. Sure. That's what I did. <laughs> what Jenny did was grab the bull by the horns and kept going. Uh, and that's the, you know, that's the part that I'm always so grateful for. And that's, a, and, and maybe you can speak to this as a therapist. That's the part that's, that's the, my, my daughter's now like 15 months in recovery and, mm-hmm. uh, to watch her grab it on day one and go, it's like, oh my God, it's so magical when people do that it has nothing to do with me. I can't do much about it. I can help along the way. I can applaud. I can, you know, help refine things. Cause I know what she's exactly what she's dealing with. Mm-hmm. I can't do that for somebody. Do you, do you feel like you can? I mean, I, I certainly can't do that for someone. And I hear the way that you minimize your contributions to, to our lives. And like, I don't know, is that really, is that helpful for you, Drew? Is that it, helpful it, for the depression? It, it, maybe yeah, not today. Yeah, today, not, not exactly helping with my depression today. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what you just witnessed was something called therapeutic wonderment <laughs> by Jenny Ketchum, which is, I don't know. I don't know. Does that is that work for you? Is that making you better? Yeah. <laughs> which is which is perfect. But I do do some of that stuff in in the in the room. That's for sure. But but I tell you what it is is um, I think humility is very 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 important in, in the in the process of recovery, particularly. And and my patients often remind me of that. You know what I mean? They're just like, yeah, yeah, you were there, but God really led me or I really did or some some out something came in from the outside and I was just there receiving receiving them to help them you know form these attacks I, that's how I all I think I mean in the early phases that's kind of what you do you, you create like you said a model for closeness so the light can turn on the, the candle can flicker yeah and, and I think that our model for closeness um, the model for closeness that I built with Jill the model for closeness that I built with um, Reef Kareem. Um, so, so let me remind Jill was our sex therapist who was an expert in this at the at the thing we did for sex rehab. And then Reef Kareem is a psychiatrist who very kindly took over for for Jenny. And uh, but again, you went and showed up and made the appointments and did, took all the initiative. That, that's it's not it's not the most common thing. I You know, whenever I talk to parents that are struggling with their kids, I always go, Look, yeah, yeah, they're very, very sick, but it, are they engaged? Are they in the process? Do they want it? And yeah. that's because when you want it, it works. It's pretty yeah. simple. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I, I think of it a lot like like as a kid, right? Like like the the parent builds this like secure bubble for attachment, right? And then the kid's job is to go out and explore and experience. And, and they toddle around the room, they put shit in their mouths, they they make bigger and bigger loops. And then and the parent's job is really to hold this space for the kid to come back to that's safe and secure. And, and I think that's really what the three of you did for me. And um, now that I'm in the position to to be of service in that way, like what an honor! What an honor! Yeah, no, I know what you. I know exactly what you mean. It's it's a privilege, right? It's a privilege to witness people's experience, and it's 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 a part of humanity that not everybody gets to see, and it's a it's a humbling privilege. And it, it's interesting you bring up you know what used to be called rapprochement. I don't know if they called that anymore in your training, but 
you know, the going and coming that the child does back to the secure base. I, I had very little of that in childhood, but I had a shit ton of it in treatment. <laughs> and yeah. it really, really helped me. Really, really helps. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I got that from my dad. There were there were some fractures there, but I think he was pretty secure. I think um the what I got from my mom was like I, I could come back and it would be safe in as much as I showed up in, in very particular ways. Um yeah. and, and reflected a very particular image. Right. Right. Yeah, for her. The her. For her. Yeah, for and sure. again, she's the person that was seeking attachment from your dad using drugs and blah 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 blah. So that you know is she is she she's still around? Is she okay? She's she is alive. She actually so I I sort of so speaking of attachment, you know, one of one of the things that happens is that when when baby comes back and mom doesn't pay attention to baby, baby just sort of gives up at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Like just like mm-hmm. oh shit. Um, and so at a certain point, this baby just sort of like gave up. It was like, I, I could reach out to my mom. I, th- I think she really, really struggled when I gave up drinking and when I started making these shifts in my life. Um, an- another thing that you have said to me that is something that I give to my clients is this idea of relationships as locks and keys, right? Mm-hmm. It's that fittedness. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And and the shape of my lock really changed and the shape of her he did not change. Mm-hmm. And so um, there, there was, there was, a, I think it was probably really painful for her to. Well, it's at least uncomfortable for them. Oh, for sure. And, and, yeah. And, and, you know, early in sobriety, I think like many early in sobriety people, I was not afraid to point out the ways in which her continued use did not serve us. And mm. um, yeah, that's, that's such a dodgy conversation to have with someone who's not in this space to have that conversation. It it is. It never really goes great. But, but after all, I mean, you were asking mom to support your recovery. That's not an unreasonable thing. Oh, I just want her to show up and like see me. Right. And, and um, that's also like akin to asking somebody uh, to walk who just doesn't have legs. Right. Like I don't know, like having some distance from it now, I don't know that she actually had the skill to be there in the way that I needed her to be there for me. Everyone is unique. That is why your healthcare should be highly personalized. I want to introduce you to today's sponsor, Wild Health, founded by two emergency room doctors. Wild Health takes a positive, proactive, preventative approach to healthcare. It's called precision medicine. It is dialed into exactly to your biology using genetics, biometrics, lifestyle data, help you determine what your body needs as far as nutrition, exercise, sleep, supplements. God knows our metabolic health is not great in this country right now. And Wild Health tailors a care plan to help you implement your individualized care plan. Wild Health pairs each person with a care team, which includes a board-certified precision medicine physician and an accredited health coach who can message you anytime through this convenient app. They go overboard to make sure they check everything and they're available for everything and they want to know everything about you. And the results speak for themselves. Wild Health patients have seen a 69% reduction in inflammation, 47% improvement in diabetic markers, and 58% reduction of cardiovascular disease and many other outcomes. 
I'll tell you, you can reduce your risks of aging as well. This is true health care rather than sick care. I've seen what Wild Health can do for me in terms of reducing my inflammatory markers, and I am excited. Wild Health is generously extending Dr. Drew listeners 20% off the cost of membership with the code DREW. Head over to wildhealth.com slash Drew. Use code DREW at checkout. Make this commitment to yourself and start taking control of your health care today at wildhealth.com slash Drew. It's in kind of the language you're using is so interesting to me because these are exactly the sorts of images I had in my own treatment. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I remember in therapy, you know, sort of going, I, I can't, I, so I feel like I'm being asked to walk like a, like a baby doe or something. It's like, I can't, I can't, the wiring's not there. It's just not there yet. Wow. And eventually it was <laughs> just oh. took some time. Totally. Um, there's a, a researcher, the guy who, um, one, one of the guys who started ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, talks a lot about um, what is actually required of babies in order to learn to walk, right? It's something like, they do some crazy number of steps an hour, like a thousand, five thousand. And then even, even to like pivot is like 300 steps to learn how to pivot. And wow. you think about that in terms of like our own behavior changes in these changes, like it was, it was unrealistic at the very least for me to expect my mom to be able to like show up in a way that she has never shown up in her life. So at, at a certain and point. What's, just, what's fascinating though, is your dad was right. Yeah. And you were yeah. with your dad. And, and as I recall, he had a really, he had a really serious drug problem, didn't he? As, along the way. He, well, he had, he had a drug problem in his youth. Um, when he started working for Chevron, they drug tested and he chose sobriety. Well, he didn't choose sobriety, but he chose not to use drugs like he would still drink. Like he, I mean, he pickled his liver. He died from, from liver cancer and, you know, cirrhosis of the liver. So, um, uh, but he, he, when he had a little bit of time off at one point, he jumped back into using cocaine and that's when that whole, like him overdosing happened. Uh, I was like nine and he overdosed and I called the ambulance and that was sort of a shit show and, and a very vibrant memory in my life. Um, and after that, he actually didn't use cocaine for the remainder of his of his life um, working for Chevron. Interestingly enough, after he died, I found out that he had started to use cocaine again, which just sort of like, you know, it, if it, it makes me think about like if if I am not drinking because of their because there's some external reward, you know, the second you take away that reward is the second that I start drinking again. Right. Like the the thing that keeps me sober is this like intrinsic like i have i have some pretty important values in my life and every day that i choose not to drink i am walking towards those and aligned with those values and um i, I don't know that my dad ever identified those values for himself explicitly right i'm sure so not. take away the cookie and he's like well what the fuck am i going to do here right like yeah no it it's right it's what we always tell people it's when you you build this thing it's when it when it when it becomes self sustaining because there's so much gratitude and things you're getting from it that it helps helps fight that that drive that system so so distorted and now you have two kids what what are the ages now so sadie is a she turns she turns a year march 7 so that's crazy and then um elsie is she just turned five years old and is it is it any shocks for you now about this process we call parenting now that you've done your own stuff and your training and everything yeah and I, um, 
You know, Drew, I have done like objectively and measurably crazy shit in my life. Like <laughs> objectively and, crazy shit. Object, That's like, kind of crazy shit, but, but measurably crazy. Measurably crazy, like Googleably <laughs> measurably crazy shit in my life. And parenting is probably the craziest thing I've ever done. Um, it is. It is such a rich and complex experience, and it provides me with. Um, like so many opportunities to learn about who I can be, you know, in each moment. And God, I just, even now I'm like, oh shit, this is so important to me. Like, I just love those little humans so, so much. Crazy, they're just, right? They're so fucking cool. They're so <laughs> cool. Like Sadie literally just learned how to put a rock in her little plastic dump truck and like push it through. And I am just... <laughs> over over the moon. I'm like, who are you? A gene? Like, who is this child? I'm this is genius. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, and and so, talk to me. Do you, do you have another book now too? We should be talking about, or do you want to talk about the old one or both? Well, so I had I put together this workbook for like uh like a thirty day um like social media. Uh, abstinence challenge, basically. And I sent it out to some publishers and didn't, didn't hear back. I think I have some refining to do on it. I think I also, so anyway, yes, I do have, I do have a book. No, it has not been published yet. It's still sort of in process. And I mean, between that and the parenting and then opening this business, I am confronted so, so frequently with my own perfectionist, uh, Mm. Un- unworkable strategies mm-hmm. uh, that I, I think that's where my my current growth is happening the most is in like oh we could be a little bit more kind or we could set a little bit more realistic expectations oh it doesn't have to be perfect and like the biggest thing the first time um so and is becoming jenny still out there I, it still exists i don't i don't write it anymore i after i went into training for becoming a therapist, I sort of hunkered down and stopped sharing those really, really intimate details of my life in this sort of like ongoing um, voyeuristic kind of way. Like I, I, you know, here in this context, yes. Uh, but, but, but it, I, I would argue that, um, I don't know, people need to see the stories, the evolution, the struggle, the, you know, how it works, how, how people get through, how they can move, you know, so I, I don't think you should look at it pejoratively. I understand why you want to put a boundary around it. Now I get that totally. I, um, I appreciate you saying that. But I, but I think it really is very helpful to people because they are just so, they just don't get it. The world is just, I, I was listening to one of the smartest guys I know podcast, a guy named Lex Friedman. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to a psychiatrist about personality structure and things. And I thought, oh my God. And the psychiatrist, I mean, you know, you know how it is in mental health. We can all disagree on certain things. But the things that this guy was saying, I was like, this guy is spot on everything he's saying. And I thought, oh, and Lex Freeman just can't get his head around it. He doesn't get how human psychology works. I thought, wow, smartest guy I know can't get it. And yeah. so I do think these experiential stories and things really have a have a place. So thank you for sharing it, I guess the way to say it. Yeah. And, and thank you for setting the stage for me to continue sharing. And I think, um, well, I, I actually have a, a documentary company from the UK reached out to me and we're talking about doing a documentary on me as I built this, this company. And as I start to expand in this 
field and profession. And so, you know, I, I have had some fear around doing so. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. careful. Make sure you have some sort of right of first, the last refusal or, or whatever, some control over it. Right. Yeah. I was uh, watching this thing, <laughs> this documentary on Netflix called Gunther's Millions. Mm. Uh, you might watch it. It's, uh, it is a uh, full scale uh, sweep of multiple levels of psychopathogenesis and psychopathology. I mean, just like, just like really out there stuff. And the guy who was the subject of it, because he was so far gone, I think, I don't want to put labels on anybody, but really, really didn't understand how sick he himself was, subjected himself to this thing where I thought, I bet he's not going to feel great about this. And and, and then, of course, the documentarians didn't understand what they were documenting and and sort of kind of kept trying to gloss and make sense of things like, no, 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 no. Oh, no, my God, this is just, this is awful on awful on awful. And and just, I just. Like people need to go to prison over some of the stuff, but uh, but anyway, be careful. That that, that was my sort of having. Maybe that's why I'm depressed today. I was exposed to that last night. <laughs> well, I think I think I think there is, uh, you know, fear doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Like yeah. it, it is grounded in reality, and you know, I, I think especially given the the bigger context of um, of media and of the sort of like unwieldiness of narratives and like how how um i guess susceptible we are to yeah you blink and you go you you're suddenly you're being perceived in a totally different way that's right so let, but that's a that's a good segue into anxiety let, let's talk about anxiety so how I'm, I'm really interested that anxiety became your crucible i guess uh, tell me how that happened yeah so so i I, in, in hindsight, I think that anxiety has been an ongoing issue for me for for quite some time. Um, some social anxiety, which seems sort of uh, silly and out of place given my history as a porn star, mm-hmm. um, and starts to sort of like make sense diagnostically when you're like, oh, well, I used a fake name, right? So there's a safety behavior. I drank a lot in social situations, used cocaine and, and marijuana in social situations, felt very uncomfortable in social situations without those sort of um, safety behaviors available to me. And um, I, I think that in terms of I've sort, I've sort of I've been, I've been really sort of conceptualizing my experience in our time together and, and moving out of that in, in, a, in a, a little bit of a different light um, in, in that, like, I think that I got pretty rigidly attached to this idea of who I could be, right? And we, we've talked a little bit about this, like the penny flame, this like very clear, concise narrative uh, of a human, you know, has no feelings, has, like is just like horny all the time. And I got, I got pretty rigidly attached to that. And the prospect of, of having options, um, was was terrifying. I think it's Rollo May who says that anxiety is nothing more than the presence of options. And so uh, yes, and, and and when you when you start entertaining options, it gets scary, right? You don't know what the consequences are going to be or what it means. I I always think about at least a part of that being connected to the spontaneous things we call feelings, the things that come out of our body, mm-hmm. and and. I do, well, I ex- personally experience a lot of anxiety uh, for me is generated from being disconnected from feeling states. Yeah. That, that sort of was my primary work, which was wiring, hooking that all back up. And, uh, and for some reason, anxiety was all I could feel 
when yeah. when I wasn't having this connection to this thing we call self and, and spontaneous feelings from our body and that kind of thing. Do you uh, see much of that stuff? I see anxiety being the noisiest emotion and the one yep. that is most easy to pay attention to. It's through, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it's almost impossible to drown that one out. It is very, very noisy. And these bodies yeah. are very noisy too. And then when we start to have these noisy embodied experiences of anxiety and then the the incessant chatter of mind and its evaluations and its judgments about that anxiety and it's all of the the contemplations and predictions that go along with it just sort of like reinforce this this anxious body doing what it does which is preparing us to run away from scary animals right and so right so so you know with i think about my experience and it's like there was I was riddled with anxiety and the, it was me in the hidey hole. You know, it was like, I, I just got to get to the hidey hole. That's when I'll be safe. Like, I just have to get there. And a, a lot of my um, recovery and, and health and just mental wellness has been in learning how to be here and, and present and sort of allow myself to lay in the field and smell the dandelions and, and, that's so weird. You keep using language that I had in my own recovery. It's so odd to me. It's really interesting. Because uh, I had this image of fields by the sort of by the shore kind of thing, like a, like some kind of grass by the shore. Kind of I'm, I'm tapping into your into Yeah, your somehow it's coming across with we are connected. Um, shared consciousness. Here we it, are. It is a thing. It is a thing. Totally. Um and and by the way, that's sort of what you sort of become very, very good at when you're that's we were talking about being present and feeling other people and being around them. You get very good of receiving what the other person has got. And, uh, you know, it's two interesting, one interesting thing. And then I want you to define something for me. One is that I, I do see very commonly people that have very, um, performancey kinds of lives or personalities often disguise themselves as shy social anxiety. It's, it's like some sort of interesting compensation, and as you said, oftentimes that thing they put out there is a cartoon version of themselves and the, the real self is in the background somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that I had been, I had really missed the formative years where I, I got to clearly define like what is important to me? Like what are, what are my values, right? These are these values as like freely chosen things that are important to us, given to us as kids. Right. And then I started doing porn when I was 18, you know? And so all of those like transitional moments where, where we get to reflect and choose the, the people that we want to become, I had been so busy crafting this, this like indestructible, untouchable identity that when we started to dismantle that in sex rehab, I was like, what the fuck is like, what there's just like empty space. Is there ground? Who am I? What is important to me? And brains hate emptiness, hate uh, empty. It feels dead. It feels like death. It feels, you know, that's, we hate it. Yes. A hundred percent. And so, you know, having, having had that experience and, and not to say that like, I know who I am because I think I can get just swept up into a new narrative that is like rigid and narrow. Mm -hmm. Um, I know what's important to me, you know, And, and I know, I know what my North stars are in this life. I know the, the constellation that I want to build in my sky. And, and I, and I really work to take actions that, um, that align with that. 
This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. And it's look easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you. People, you know, we our boundaries get kind of porous. And therapy can give you the tools to find more balance and to set boundaries, keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. You know, of course, I'm an advocate for therapy, and I'm tired of people using stigma as an excuse. And with BetterHelp, stigma is no longer an excuse. It's entirely online. There's no waiting room or any, any, any reason not to take care of your brain the way you take care of other parts of your body. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, as I said designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist, switch therapists anytime if it's not working out, and you can find more balance. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash drew today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash drew. Let's define anxiety. Uh, and, and I kind of feel like there's different, well, there's no doubt, there's different flavors of anxiety. And tell me about your perception of that. Sure. So so I think it's helpful to, um, to distinguish first uh, fear from anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Fear is um, a, an emotional response to a, a present threat. Directed. It's happening right now as a source. Exactly. Right. So I'm swimming in the ocean. I'm being attacked by a shark. I am afraid of (laughs) being killed by the shark. Right. Anxiety is um, anticipated fear. It it involves this sort of like cognitive work of what's to come. I'm standing on the beach. I'm looking out in the ocean. I'm imagining myself being eaten by this shark. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm cognitively working through like, oh, this is going to happen, right? There's this sort of predictive quality to it. Anticipatory. Mm -hmm. Um, Different than panic. Yeah, which is just the maximum fear, right? It's the, it is a- Spiraling, spiraling out of control fear. Out of control fear. Right, exactly. Is, you know do you do you perceive this about anxiety that that I, there's something in it i'm i'm no expert in anxiety so i'm i'm asking you as the expert that there's there are people when they experience anxiety they get depressed right like it leads them to depression somehow overwhelms them and makes them depressed and there are other people that when they are depressed is when they feel they're most anxious have you seen that and and then i i feel like the ones that are depressed and move towards anxiety tend to have more of an OCD flavor of anxiety, like it's associated with OCD, other stuff, which does seem to link into some kinds of anxiety. Mm-hmm. You tell me. So, so there's some pretty good data on um, like some sequencing in terms of like, um, so anxiety is functional, right? Like as humans evolutionarily uh, being able to experience anxiety has served us well right and we have been selected for our capacity to be anxious right like you and i are the children of the children and the children of the children of the children who were worried about going out into the field and being attacked by the bear so we went back to the fucking hut Mm -hmm. you know that's where we went and so um so in terms of anxiety's functionality um anxiety tells us to prepare to plan to get our ducks in an order so that you know we don't die right Mm -hmm. and 
when we experience anxiety and we try to fight against anxiety, we're like, no, I shouldn't feel this. I don't want to, I don't want to feel this. I don't need to, right. We sort of start to hide away and we start to like power down, right? Well, what is depression? Depression is this like powering down of the system, right? It's like, I'm not going to do anything. Depression itself is a, is a constellation of like physiological responses, right? So um, physical symptoms, cognitive symptoms and emotional symptoms, right? So like uh, often like uh, lethargy or, or just feeling like really, really tired, um, negative thoughts, like negative self-evaluations um, and, and then sadness and hopelessness, right? Like, oh, I, I, I can never, I can't get out of this. There's nothing I can do about this, right? And so if you think about the sequencing in terms of like anxiety shows up, it's like, we need to prepare for action. We fight against anxiety. We're like, I shouldn't feel this way. And then suddenly we're depressed. Right? Mm-hmm. It is the, the that has, is what I've noticed for sure, that the powerlessness, you know, the sort of overwhelming quality of it. Yeah. And, but how about the people that have this sort of OCD thing? That's, that's sort of my zone. I, I know I have a lot of OCD quality to my brain function. And I've noticed a lot of other anxious people tend to have that. I guess that's that rehearsal and planning and all that nonsense that you get carried away with. Sure. Well, and, and I think if you, if you think about um, depression in terms of like the size of your life, right? Like how big is your life when you are super depressed? Mm. It's strokes, yeah, constricted. It's really constricted, right? And when OCD is dominating your life, when when you are trying to get away from these like private psychological events, mm-hmm. right? that's really what OCD is, right? You're like, I can't have this thought, get it out. I can't have this feeling, get it out, right? But they live inside of you. You you literally cannot escape the experience, right? And so you create all these behaviors and all these behaviors end up shrinking your life, right? And so... Um, there's there's pretty good data. Well, there's really good data that you know the the more problems we get, the more likely we are to to be depressed. Mm. Right? The more depressed we are, the less skilled we are at solving problems. Our brains just don't work as well, right? And so you think about OCD as like the ultimate problem solving machine, right? How do I get this thought out of my head? How do yeah. I get the yeah. word pedophile out of my head? Oh, I think Jesus, 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 Jesus. <laughs> 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 and so right. then suddenly you're just thinking Jesus all day long, but like it it touches pedophile. And so nothing you do will ever, you know, disconnect those two. And and the yeah, this the strategies that you're using to solve the problems aren't actually solving the problems. And that right. helps helps add to the anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And so who do you want people to whom do you want to come to West Coast Anxiety? I mean, so I I work primarily with people who have OCD. I I do a lot of OCD work. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) (laughs) You do exposure therapy, that kind of thing? I do exposure therapy and about, uh, yep, I'd say 100% of my panel right now is doing some form of exposure therapy. Um, Talk talk to me about that. It's really important. And, And I think everybody has sort of understands particularly vividly things like phobias and fears and stuff like that. And and that you maybe you can sort of talk about how you treat those things and then more generally OCD. Yeah. So, so one of the issues with um, uh, OCD is that we're sort of training ourselves to try and escape something that is really inescapable, right? Like I said earlier, anxiety serves this function and it is um, something that provides us an opportunity to learn. 
right? And what does anxiety teach us? If we allow the experience of anxiety, um, we we learn like one of four things. One, we learn the thing that we were anxious about didn't happen or it wasn't as severe as we thought, right? Like we can't go swimming in the ocean and not get eaten by a shark today, right? Or we learn that, um, uh, yeah, that, that we can survive it. Turns out like, I went swimming in the ocean. I got attacked by a shark. Now I have this huge shark bite and like, I, I, I made it like, okay. Like might be less inclined. With, to with, my, huge, with my huge shark bite. <laughs> I have a huge shark bite. And you know what? Like we're on our way now. There's a Netflix documentary about me. Like, you know, right. I have to worry a little bit about controlling that narrative, but here we are, you know, uh, we also learned that we can, um, live with anxiety. We can live full and meaningful lives with anxiety. We learn that the things that we're doing to keep ourselves safe, right? Like counting to 10 before we get in the water or saying Jesus in, you know, every time I think the word pedophile, that, that those aren't actually necessary to keep us safe, that they, they aren't really serving a function, right? Um, I learned when I, when I stopped drinking that I don't actually need alcohol to connect intimately with people. Right. That's actually one of the things that's preventing me from connecting intimately. Um, and then when we when we allow the experience of anxiety to happen without fighting against it, we also learn that anxiety itself is a totally safe experience. Right. It is 100 percent safe to yeah. feel anxiety. There is nothing dangerous about it. A panic attack, 100 percent safe. Right. We don't think it's safe. And then we start fighting against it. Well, yeah. I, I also, again, as somebody experiences all these things you're talking about or had, um, I had trouble allowing my brain to feel things like emptiness and fear and stuff without the other present. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do think it's important to point out the other, we do need other people, you know, somebody who is deeply attuned to us, therapist, something like that, to really make some of these things possible for us. And and that it was my experience of that's what settled that all down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I think that that is one of the most important things about um, finding somebody that you can really trust and connect with, and who is skilled in the art of exposure therapy. Um, it, it Describe is what that means. Describe what that means because I think people don't get what that is. Yeah. Sure. So so with regard to this idea of like allowing yourself to experience the experience of anxiety, right? It sounds real fucking therapy, but. Really, what that is all saying is that in exposure therapy, we expose you to something that you're afraid of. We allow anxiety to do what it does to to run its full life course inside of you. It might go high, it might go low, it might, you know, look like a, a heartbeat, right? But like it it does what it does, and we just don't interfere with that. And then we see what there is to learn. And we do this over and over and over and over, right? So with this example of pedophile and Jesus, we yeah. think pedophile, 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 pedophile. These are terrible things, right? But like, yeah. but this is this is one of the common OCD themes. It's like, and, and so we think this word and and we don't interfere with the anxiety that shows up when we think this word. And then and then we learn something. With, how do you decide? I have no real training in this. I've been around a lot of therapists that do this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you decide how to step up the exposure? That's always been a little mysterious to me. Is there is there a calculus you're doing? Is it an instinct? And, and describe what I've even talking about. Sure, sure. So, so at the beginning of treatment, what we do is we will create an exposure list that will target the things that you're most afraid of, right? Um, and 
that list initially when exposure and response prevention um, started to get its legs in, in the mental health field, they, they would structure it as a hierarchy, this idea that like some things are scarier than other things for people, and we would tackle them in order of scariness, right? So um, is, is thinking the word pedophile um, less scary than sitting in a park? I don't know why I'm really stuck on this idea. I, you know what? It's, it's one of the most taboo things to talk about. And so right. I feel sort of pulled to talk about that here. Okay. Um, right. So, so, so this, people do too. I mean, people get these weird thoughts and thoughts, you know, that's right. And so it's, it's a totally normal, uh, it's a totally normal thing in the constellation of OCD and it's a pedophile is just a word that comes to your brain. If you don't like, if you care about kids and you don't want want it and you don't want it to, yeah, exactly. But (laughs) secondly, you don't want it to, there it is. Right. And so, so we, we structure initially exposure response prevention would ask us to structure these like exposure hierarchies with this um, idea that things are scarier than other things. And then we would tackle it in order of uh, scariness to help build some um, efficacy as you, as you start to go along things. What the research has started to show is that um, to some extent that reinforced this idea that things are inherently scary and that clients could only handle things in this sort of like progressing order. And so the way that I go about structuring it is that we will create an exposure menu and we we pick some um, adventures for you, some experiences for you. And, you know, the, the first few, so we'll, we'll create like 15, 20 different experiences. And then the first few you'll choose, what are you willing to do, right? Like, what are you willing to experience no matter what shows up, um, and we'll do those first. And then what I like to do is I assign everything a random number because the universe doesn't give a shit about the order in which you want to do things. Right. And then we have Google. Show up. Yeah. yeah. Show we, up. We, use, we use a random number generator and that's how we decide what you do. And, um, and, and then we spend, you know, anywhere from 16 to 22 weeks doing these experiments and seeing what happens and seeing. Give, them, give an example of, of like, just take a, Particularly like an exposure like to a snake or a, or whatever, you know, go ahead. Sure, sure. So, so um, in working with emetophobia, so emetophobia is this fear of vomit, right? And uh, let's see, the exposure menu looked like listening to somebody vomit, seeing somebody vomit, smelling vomit, um, seeing the word vomit, um, uh, drinking alcohol, uh, right? Because... I might vomit, right? right? I might vomit. Um, ordering chicken from a restaurant. I don't know how that chicken's cooked. I can't do that. Um, eating leftovers that have been in the fridge for more than two days. Gosh, um, do you ever have to make, do you have to ever give somebody an, an emetic and make them vomit because they get so rigidly, or do they, as they go through it, do they usually make it? Well, so, so one of the things that we uh, started playing around with was like putting your fingers in your throat and like feeling the sensation, right? right. Yeah. This is somebody that like had no binge purge history. And so, I, yeah. and even there, you know, it's this, and so practicing curiosity as she. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. We're back there, like touching the dangler. And it's like, what does that feel like? And seeing yeah. if you can like experience this from this stance of curiosity and instead of this stance of, oh my God, I'm going to throw up if I touch this. Pick up that glass of Pinot Grigio, your drink of choice, and come have some fun with us on Turtle Time. We're going to do more than just drink and party on this podcast, Mom. I know, I know. 
Okay, if you don't know who I am, well, I'm Ramona Singer, and that's my daughter, Avery. And you probably know us best from the Real Housewives of New York. And now you'll get to know us even better on our podcast, Turtle Time. Let's make more iconic moments together every Wednesday. It's Turtle Time. Follow, rate, and review now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, and do things generally, right, it probably goes both ways, but do you generally see things sort of slowly extinguish or do they stay kind of heightened and then suddenly extinguish? So with with fear, we usually see, um, I've been seeing things extinguished uh, pretty quickly. Uh, so it, it's afraid, 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 afraid. And then it's like, holy shit, I have been limiting my life. Yeah. So much because of this. That's that's sort of typical of uh, my understanding of how fear of flying goes too. Fear of flying, it comes out of nowhere, up, 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 and then gone. <laughs> and it goes away because yeah. of that kind of an insight, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And with something like a metaphobia, right? Like it's still gross. <laughs> or, <laughs> I still don't want to vomit, right? And so like I'm still yeah. a little like, Ooh, like, oh my god it just occurs to me there's all kinds of horrible youtube and stuff out there you could expose people to we, as part oh, of this you know, yeah. well, well, so i i actually um i was feeling a little nauseous and i thought okay this is a great exposure Jenna. like i asked people to do scary things all day long i thought okay well, I, I clearly don't want to be sick i'm like okay jenny like let's really lean into this nausea right so i ate everything that like one does not eat if one right i had like red sauce for dinner you know That's i like funny. tried to work out and then you know by the end of the night i was i was vomiting like i i was vomiting and, and was it a, middle, a good experience or well so in the middle of vomiting i was like fuck, I got to go get my voice memo so I can record this and get some vomit content, you know? And, but then I, I didn't, I didn't, I just continued vomiting. And then, and then later on I said, okay, if, what a missed opportunity. And if I, if I feel like throwing up again, I'm, and so I recorded it and I, you know, I told one of my clients, I'm like, I got some really great bomb con for you. And they were like, Oh my God. Like you, <laughs> you are, you are a committed therapist. For sure. Like I so appreciate the. <laughs> Well, we got to kind of wrap things up here. You and I could talk all day. Um, uh, anything? Did we miss anything? Anything else you want people to know about the services you guys provide and and where you are? And are, is there anything online? Is there do you do stuff through uh, you know telehealth? What, what's the spectrum of what what people can get access to? Yeah, great. So um, we are entirely telehealth right now. Uh, we're we're realizing that with a lot of these exposures, it's it's best that we are in your house anyway, and you know, your most intimate places. And so um, the, the telehealth is providing such a wonderful platform for this sort of connection. And it really does save people a lot of money in terms of therapist travel. Like now I don't have to bill you to drive to your house or anything like that. And now that people are, if you're in a rural area, you have a lot easier access to, um, to really great treatment. And so um, you can uh, get on our wait list at westcoastanxiety.com. Um, I'm currently in the process of hiring new clinicians. And so if you're a clinician listening to this and you are, you know, uh, devoted to exposure and response prevention and, and really supporting people who are struggling with anxiety and anxiety related disorders, give me a shout. And I'm, I'm in the hiring process too. It, it seemed uh, to me that uh, telehealth would lend itself to CBT also. Are you doing CBT with some of your services? Oh yeah. 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 And, 
uh, acceptance and commitment therapy is it's third wave CBT. It sort of takes a stance uh, less that we need to change your thoughts and more that we need to change the relationship to your thoughts. Right. And so think whatever you want and let's hold that a little bit more loosely. So yes, yes. uh, CBT is, is happening in these, in this context as well. Great. That's very exciting, Jenny. I, I'm, it, 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 you know, we've been, we, I mean, the world has been sort of looking for a way to deliver mental health services through, through electronic media, because it's, it's a, it's, it has to happen. And, uh, Many have failed. <laughs> and I always thought there would be certain services that will really lend itself to this to this stuff. You know, there's there's you know, it's hard to do psychiatry through the through this, but CBT exposure therapies makes perfect sense to me. There's a great organization, I don't know if you're a part of, it's the International Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Federation. IOCDF. Yeah, IOCDF.org. Uh, you should, you know, I hope you're on their referral list and stuff. They're really oh, yeah. good organization. You should go speak. You know, you you've ever been to one of their conferences? Uh, so been to their conference, I actually did uh, their, they have their BTTI training. It's behavioral therapy training Institute. That's where I did all of my exposure and response prevention training. I want all of my therapists to be trained through IOCDF's BTTI. That is the gold standard for the industry in terms of treating OCD and in anxiety disorders. So it's, um, it, again, weird. I spoke for them about seven or eight years ago, something like that. And, and I was like, Oh my God, this is the greatest diagnostic specific patient centered organization I've ever seen. And it was just wonderful. So if anxiety, phobias, OCD, I urge everyone to check that out and check out West coast anxiety. Jenny, uh, as always, it is inspiring and a privilege to talk to you every time I talk to you. So thank you for all the great work and uh, good luck with the kids. It will be a humbling experience. I promise. Thanks, Drew. And, and thank you for being a secure base for me to always come back to. I really, really appreciate you. It is is appreciated on my end. And uh, again, get me to my next day. It's inspiring. So thank you. And everyone else, we will uh, see you next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. See what's screaming all month long during Pluto TV's April Ghouls. Watch hauntingly good movies like Evil Dead and Cloverfield or terrifying shows like The Walking Dead and Nosferatu. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows available on live and on demand. Download the free Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never.